Hello, and welcome to Deconstructor Fund's This Week in Games podcast. Now, this episode is brought to you by LabCave. And LabCave is a mobile growth company that provides app store optimization and mediation services for apps and games. And most importantly, the company has achieved more than 200 million organic downloads without running any paid acquisition campaigns. Now, LabCave has tested almost every solution in the market while realizing that none of them were built with app developers in mind. That led to the birth of a product with, a, with the goal to provide a flexible yet powerful solution to efficiently manage in-app inventory. Now, LabCave strives for full transparency and control, providing the right set of tools and advanced reports in order to make the right data-driven decisions, making sure publishers can ultimately increase their ad revenue. I'm sure all of us are ready and pretty much primed to increase our revenue. So I suggest that you visit labcavegames.com. It's a really cool product. And on and on their website, labcavegames.com, you can learn more about their mediation and organic growth services. So check out labcavegames.com. And without further ado, it's This Week in Games. Hey everyone, welcome to Twig 48. Today we are going to be covering five different articles. The first is thinking about daily active users and the limitations of this metric from Alexander McMillan's blog. The second is a learning journey, announcing EA's cloud gaming technical trial, which was a medium post. The third is how Zynga looks for the right game companies to acquire, which was a VentureBeat article. The fourth is Disney reportedly planning sale of game division Fox Next, reported by gamesindustry.biz. And finally, are the glory days of social casino over? Probably by Lloyd Melnick's The Business of Social Games and Casino blog. So how are you guys doing? All right. Ready to start the week. All right. And by the way, today we have myself, uh, Joe Kim, Eric Kress, and Adam Telfer. So your regular crew, although we are miss, missing Mishka once again, uh, but we'll, we'll get him back eventually. And before we start, just for me personally, a couple of quick shout outs. The first is to Bidalgo for sponsoring the UA Master Summit in SF. You know, we had a really great event there, an exclusive event that focused on UA. And I think this event is only going to get better. You can also follow me live on that event on my Game Makers YouTube channel. So check that out. And for those who aren't aware, I, I definitely want to recommend people also check out the Level Up Gaming Podcast by Iron Source. Both Mishkin and I have, and I'm currently in the process of co-hosting a podcast with Melissa Zalouf for Level Up. And, you know, Melissa's great. She also sounds way more sophisticated than uh, any of us because of her, you know, really cool accent. But anyway, definitely worth checking out. Eric and Adam, do you guys have any updates or news? We freaking crushed it on this Fox Next call, right? So now officially, <laughs> these guys are for sale, and they've been for sale for like a year, but we were solely on top of that. All right, so maybe starting with the first article, which is thinking about daily active users and the limitations of this metric, and this is uh, written by Alexander McMillan on his blog of the same name. 
So definitely want to show some love to our fellow deconstructor of fun writers and definitely want to encourage folks to check out Alexander's blog. We'll put a link in the show notes to his blog as well. But, you know, Alexander's article is short, but to the point, and, and essentially the point is that uh, DAU, DAO, is increasingly becoming less relevant than other measures, such as DAC, aka Daily Active Customer, as popularized by Kabam and Jeff Howell, Kabam's former CTO. Um, and the funny thing is that although, you know, a fair amount of companies have realized this, there are still a lot of people who do focus on DAO when it may not necessarily be the right metric to focus on. And by the way, for some games, DAO does make sense, but people do need to take the context of the metrics into consideration. And for me, the, the kind of funnier part is that of the companies that have come to the realization that, that you know, this is an important, that kind of the, the, the notion of DAC rather than DAO is, uh, is an important metric, there's just so little consistent naming. And so whether it's DAC or SDAO or SpenderDAO or PDAO or PearDAO, and just last week I uh, heard of a new one, MDAO, which I assume means monetizing DAO. Anyway, kind of like the old DARPU versus ARPDAO terminology battle. Um, I, I was actually on the losing side of that one. I, I hope we just standardize on, on DAC. Right? <laughs> I think DAC makes the most sense to me personally. And so, um, you know, I'm, I'm calling it for it right here. Uh, all you industry people, let's, let's kind of shift everything to DAC so we're all using consistent naming. Um, but I will say one caveat uh, is that we may not want to entirely give up on DAO or, you know, even in situations where it may not make as much sense as other metrics. Uh, and what I'm saying is that DAO could potentially make a comeback. And by the way, this is just a rumor. So, you know, I can't. And this is a very speculative rumor, but I did hear there was some contemplation of some of the data guys like, uh, like App Annie and Sensor Tower possibly showing DAO data. So if that happens, then I would say suddenly DAO would again become uh, a useful measure, especially if we have DAO data across you know, a bunch of games. But you know, again, this is pure speculation. Uh, how, would they, how would they get that DAO data? Is it I just- do not know. <laughs> Like it, what was it? Was it the retention stuff? They just look at like a subset of users and then they extrapolate for the whole user base. I mean, I, I think there are some not so great ways that I can think of of doing it, but yeah. I, you know, but they, but, but they have MAUs now. Yeah. On on Sensor Tower and App Annie, I think. And I think the data is nonsense, but like it's I don't know. I, I imagine it shows good. It trends, right? But I don't know if it's accurate holistically. I don't know. I haven't looked into it too much. I should shut up. Yeah, I mean, you know, also like uh, App Annie now has um, sort of organic versus paid UA uh, against uh, um, against install volume. Uh, I mean, I think that's still a beta product or potentially still a beta product. But uh, yeah, I mean, that that kind of data, unless you're actually getting it from the from the the publisher, I don't, I don't, I can't imagine you can. Well, I mean, you, you could say that about revenue and download data too, right? No, no, no. Well, true, but they do get data from the publishers in order to to populate their their rankings, right? So, yeah, so Some that's data. why it is relatively accurate. Anyway, but even you know, with, even with DAU, you could easily same thing that they did on um, what is it, Gamstat, when they look at PlayStation numbers, right? Like all they do is just they get a subsample of the the audience, and then they anchor that to if any of their customers actually give them the DAU data. Huh. Yeah, I mean MAU and DAU are probably the most exaggerated metrics on in this business. It's really annoying, you know. And a lot of times, I think they're completely irrelevant, right? Um, 
it's really all about how how many customers are actually spending. You know, it's about customers, not about people you're playing your game. Now, that's not always true. I mean, I think having a uh, active install base helps. You know, with the overall ecosystem, but you know, at Kabam, as you said earlier, I for, I, it's funny because I totally know this guy that you, you said, Jeff Howell, right? Yeah, I mean, we we focused on DAC, right? Like a daily average consumers, and and it really basically tracked how active the spenders were and how when we were doing promotions and doing um, you know specials and stuff, it really just showed how engaged these spenders were. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think. Tracking DAC activity and churn is probably the best way of kind of understanding how well your game is doing from a monetization perspective. But uh, I'll let uh, Adam give his two cents here. Yeah, uh, of course, completely agree on DAC. Um, yeah, th looking through it as more like a lens is incredibly important for both, I would say, casual and core games, um, since like DAC is still a basic user count metric. But actually looking at retention, churn, progression, economy, engagement funnels through this lens is really, really important. Similar to how um, switching away from just looking at day-by-day -day retention metrics and instead looking at things like NER, CUR, and RUR, as in like new user retention or return rates and returning user return rates, give you actually better high-level metrics to actually see the health of your game in comparison to just kind of standard rolling day retention. Um, also, I just want to call out one really good message from the article. Um, this shouldn't actually be super eye-opening for, for anybody in the, the industry, um, but I want to kind of reiterate the key point that relates a lot to my kind of day-to-day -day when designing economies, and that's kind of engagement versus monetization. Um, there's a lingering idea that payers engage less than non-payers or that you need to design your economy so that players either engage or pay, and this is absolutely not the case. Uh, pairs are far more likely to come from your hyper-engaged pool, and uh, Alexander actually shows a lot of that data here, which is very good. Um, and this is really kind of reiterates why I speak a lot about economic depth and why it's absolutely crucial for retention and monetization. Because when you're actually modeling out your economy, you have to design it for a player that's not only playing hours every single day, but on top of that actually spending um, you know, hundreds, thousands of dollars. Um, because this is actually the dominant customer in your game. This is what this metric needs to be tracking. And if your systems aren't flexible enough to support that, then you're dead. <laughs> okay, then. Um, <laughs> the next article <laughs> is about a learning journey, announcing EA cloud gaming technical trial. And uh, this was an article that was written by Ken Moss, I guess, CTO of EA, which is interesting and I, it's a little bit surprising frankly that they come out with a cloud cloud gaming trial right now but anyway for, so basically his quote was for ea our continued focus will be on making sure our games will be ready for cloud powered future with our players can engage, engage and enjoy anytime anywhere on any device you know <laughs> i hate these press releases they're just so cheese right but anyway um, it's codenamed Atlas. Uh, basically, his goal, the goal is to test performance and quality in cloud gaming, also testing what kind of games and or genres uh, can work on the system. Uh, so there's four games as part of the trial. It's FIFA 19, Titanfall 2, Need for Speed Rivals, and Unravel. Um, and so there's this more corporate speak about, oh, this is the future, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, yada, 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 uh, oppor opportunity to test and explore. So my cynicism, I, obviously, on this one, but um, 
my, you know, my take on this was first, I was surprised that they're actually doing this at all, right? And then they're partnering with Amazon and not Google or Microsoft. And I, my understanding was Amazon was pretty far behind the rest of the other guys, but I, they're a huge AWS customer, I'm sure, I imagine. And, uh, um, and so I, I guess they're building up their infrastructure as well. So PC Magazine had some impressions. I actually, I actually tried it myself, but I don't think my opinions can be stated officially, right? I think that, so I'm just gonna use PC Magazines. Uh, but you know, basically PC Magazine said there was some lag and stutters on his MacBook Pro. Um, there was one network error uh, that just, you know, basically shut down the whole thing. Um, other than that, it seemed like a very relatively successful trial. Their claim was that you need five megabit connection, um, which will allow 640 by 40, which is way too low, uh, but the 30 megabit connection for 720 or 1080p. Um, and the quote from them, you know, to make cloud gaming appealing, EA will also need to figure out how to price it. But so far, I like what I see. EA demonstrated that the technology works and it can offer exciting catalog of games at a reasonable price. The cloud gaming may have a chance to shake up the industry and lure some customers away from consoles. Um, I, I just, I just fundamentally disagree, right? I think we are in a situation in where good enough is not good enough, right? And for most console gamers, they're going to stick with their consoles, right? They would have to offer something pretty gosh darn sweet to get the lion's share of the existing customers off the PS4s and Xbox One. And I just don't think they're going to do that anytime soon. Um, first of all, I don't think EA really has a catalog of games to make a compelling service on their own at all. Um, full stop. I mean, like, uh, they're going to have to partner with other content providers to create something that's super, that's compelling enough. Um, but I do agree with Ken Moss's quote, I suppose. Uh, the bottom line is this, cloud gaming is coming. It's no longer a question of if, but when. So EA is working on it, um, but not sure if it makes sense for them to run their service, their own service. I think, I think you know, they could provide content to other services you know, like Google Stadia, but I don't think the unit economics are gonna work for them to run their own service. Um, and we've talked about this numerous times about why Stadia is gonna fail, et cetera. So go back and listen to those podcasts. But I think there's just some fundamental questions about whether or not this audience is interested in something that's not gonna be as good as their console experience. So what do you think, Mr. Adam? Yeah, I can't really add too much to this. It just seems odd to me that EA would put their hat in the ring on this. Like Google, Sony, Microsoft, and Amazon, I'd actually assume they have the infrastructure as a core competency, but can EA really actually compete in this? Because um, my sense is that content and tech together is actually what's needed to make this work. So it's tough to actually see each of these kind of serious platform creators on the cloud side get either side of that wrong, um, right? Like EA has the content, but not the tech. Google yeah. has the tech, but not the content. Yeah, and, and, and again, like as I said, it's inevitable. It's going to happen. And maybe 10 years from now, like the tech is cheap enough to make sense. But when you're building out this stuff, it's got to be super expensive, you know, like I mean, AWS would be charging them an arm and a leg. Like the unit economics can't possibly work. I, I just, I don't see it because you're, I've already ranted about this before, but like you're paying for 1080p, 4K type delivery for a hundred hour game, you know, like that's expensive. Right? <clears throat> I mean, that, that's, that's no joke, not to mention the hardware behind it. So I, everybody I talk to that's in this industry that follows this stuff is like, this shit don't work. You know, like it doesn't not work. But anyway, go ahead, Joe. Okay, Joe. Uh, so it sounds to me like it'd be pretty cool if we had like a blog post on the economics of cloud gaming. Adam, you want to write that one? <laughs> <laughs> 
think no, he's, got, no. he's too busy with his real job. <laughs> <laughs> I do a podcast now. It's a little easier to write blog posts. Yeah, exactly. All right, so uh, there's a call out to anyone out there who wants to write a blog post on the, the economics of cloud gaming. Please, uh, please let us know. We want to put that on the Deconstructor of Fun uh, blog. So please do that. But just a quick nerd note on Eric's question about partnering with Amazon. I mean, I don't know for sure, but one reason they might be partnering with Amazon may be the breadth of the footprint of Amazon's infrastructure. So just to provide some context, uh, for cloud gaming to work, uh, there's kind of an academic limit generally attributed to latency, which is around like a max ceiling of 100 milliseconds of delay before players start to notice a delay. And there are two parts to this delay. The first is encoding latency, which is the time to compress video output. And the second is a network latency. And generally speaking, like, you know, academics will generally um, like budget 20 milliseconds of delay, typically to the encoding and other delays. And 80 milliseconds is left for the network latency. So there was a study about five years ago that actually studied the Amazon's infrastructure. And at that time found that like Amazon EC2 could only provide median latency of 80 milliseconds or less to fewer than 70% of their measured end hosts in that study. And that, that's just the median delay. So if Google or Microsoft aren't as built out from a footprint perspective, that may be one of the reasons why there's this partnership with Amazon instead. But going back to uh, the other point that Eric makes, I, I'd have to agree that EA going up against these tech companies is is a little bit weird. I, I think that it's it's almost like you know like the legacy car companies trying to compete against Tesla, or kind of how Blockbuster kind of got their ass handed to them by Netflix. So I mean, I haven't studied it that much, but on the face of it, cloud gaming does seem like more of a you know a, a, to Adam's point, a tech play and a content play. But EA really isn't a tech company with a culture and mindset of a technology company, so it doesn't sound like a very good fit at least on the face of it, but, but we'll see. All right. Now that you've nerded out on the fucking millisecond stuff, <laughs> but, but no, the, the, the thing that I was talking about is like, of course, AWS is everywhere. There's no doubt, but you have to build custom servers for this stuff. It's not like you can, you know, the blades that they were talking about at Google, like that, that it has to have a CPU and GPU, you know, in, in the, in the cloud. Right. And, and yeah, build yeah. up these huge infrastructure. I, I thought, I thought AWS was really far behind on that. And maybe, they're stepping up and just building this stuff out, you know, with all their engineers and, and things. So it just made sense that uh, Microsoft or Google would be more likely a uh, partner on this thing for them. But we'll see. Um, so let's take a look at Zynga. Um, the article is from VentureBeat, um, how Zynga looks for the right game companies to acquire. Um, this was written by Dean Takahashi. Um, and he basically does an interview with Chris Petrovich, uh, SVP of Corporate Strategy. Petrovic. Petrovic. Sorry. I had to get European on that. <laughs> Damn uh, Canadians. <laughs> Zynga's growth since their IPO has actually been on the back of a lot of strong acquisitions, as we've kind of reported many, many times here on the podcast. Uh, big ones being Small Giant, Graham, as well as Peak's card game division. Um, keep in mind, while we've actually had like three to four like great acquisitions recently, Zynga in its long history, actually has now acquired uh, 33 different companies. Um, this included things like Natural Emotion, so that's like CSR Racing, Dawn of Titans, and all the way back to kind of their beginnings with My Mini Life, which was the original developer of Farmville on Facebook. Um, their history has been great recently, but of course they had a lot of rough spots, like the acquisition of OMG Pop, 
Um, that was the developer of Draw Something, as well as the Words with Friends developer, uh, which actually took a lot of effort to kind of meet their acquisition costs. So Zynga being on a tear recently is definitely something that they should, they've improved upon and should be proud of. So that's really what this article kind of focuses on is how they changed. Um, so the interview talks about kind of their like key steps in their process. So the big thing there was a lot more focus on long-term, um, in terms of like long-term commitment by the developer to the partnership. Um, so definitely no buying and walking away. Uh, and also just looking at the trajectory of the company, ensuring that they can meet or exceed that in the future. Um, so not just looking at, say, an, an ONG pop uh, type situation where there is definite short-term success, um, but taking uh, maybe a step back and thinking, making sure that the success is something that can actually uh, work in the long haul. So with companies that have actually quite a bit of runway, so it's not like you're picking up a game that's that's losing um, losing money and already at a massive scale. So in the case of Small Giant and Graham, that was definitely the case. Uh, their success was far more proven at the point that they were acquired. So no more speculative early buys and grabbing devs with explosive growth only in the short term. Um, so this has obviously shifted them from, say, $100 million acquisition strategy to a larger one. So $250 for Graham, $250 million for Graham, and $700 million for Small Giant. And uh, as well within the article, they reiterate that selling their HQ for $600 million actually leaves them room for a similar-sized move in the future. Um, they also briefly talk about PC console, which I personally found interesting. Uh, and he said that Zynga is getting more connected to it and definitely hinted at them uh, getting more involved in the space. Uh, this will be very interesting to see, uh, especially as free-to-play actually grows on PC console and since much of their exec team is actually XEA. Um, but my experience, at least, from shifting from mobile free-to-play to PC uh, console free-to-play is that it doesn't translate easily. So it would be just as difficult as a move as that transition that they had from Facebook to mobile. And the total addressable market increase that they talked about in the article isn't nearly the same opportunity that it was in that move to mobile. So they'd most likely be actually be better off acquire that expertise. So working with another partner, but as we've talked before on this podcast, successful independent PC console developers that are working in free to play is definitely a frothy market. So we'll see. But Eric. Yeah. Um, interesting. You, you uh, did some research here. 33 companies they acquired. I, I, I think during the early days, they were acquiring people in droves and it didn't quite work out for them. But uh, recently with these two like kind of big, bigger acquisitions, which is kind of what they talk about in the article, I think uh, these make a lot more sense. Anyway, I'm a huge fan of Petrovic. We worked together uh, at Kabam for about, I think, two years. Uh, he is like the quintessential corp dev guy. Like he knows everybody. He's super nice, you know, not like me. Um, and and he, he just walks in the room at like dice or something and everyone's, you know, giving him heads up like cheers, you know, with Norm. Anyway, but um, we had the I had an opportunity to travel with them at Gamescon and sit down with them with meetings and uh, with other potential partners and acquisitions, et cetera. Um, and, it, and he's impressive. Um, and so far under his watch, they've made some really smart acquisitions in my view. Um, I think based upon his effort, uh, they've literally, I think, added about $2 billion in market cap to Zynga over the past year. And from, from his perspective, I hope he gets his cut, you know. <laughs> I hope they're paying him well. Um, so I, I do think they had to pay very high numbers for Graham Games and, and Small Giant. Um, but I think they've already paid off, uh, particularly in the, in the market cap size, uh, 
uh, increase, but also uh, in the revenues uh, contribution. And I think they will actually, both those acquisitions will drive even more significant uh, uh, you know, market cap growth over the next few years is my guess. So anyway, I think he's really perfect for this job, perfect guy for this job. He's like leveraging his learnings from Kabam and relationships from GameStop uh, to deliver really good acquisitions for Zynga. And where I do think that Zynga has a unique position in the market where they have an existing distribution uh, platform and they also have the cash, you know, really deep pockets to make these really strategic acquisitions. And I wish him all the luck. And I hope, again, he's getting recognized for all his contribution to the <clears throat> Zynga story because I think these acquisitions are actually making it far more of a viable long-term story than otherwise. So anything from you, Joe? Yeah, so I don't know Petrovic, but uh, I'll agree. He definitely sounds and talks like a really good exec. Uh, I, I think good execs are, you know, pretty good at talking and sounding smart without actually saying much. So let, let me clown him a little bit, although I, you know, I definitely have a lot of respect for him. But I mean, that response to the console PC question where you went on for like four paragraphs and, you know, like if you put that into Google Translate, the answer would be like, maybe. <laughs> so anyway, um, I, I'm not being sarcastic though when I say he definitely sounds smart and, and is definitely good at the executive talk. And uh, I, I think the real answer to that question, uh, I've heard from a few people now, it, I, I think we know the, an the actual answer to that. But anyway, that for, for me, just, just in terms of a lot of the questions from that interview, I, I think the, the key question and, and the other question I think Petrovic dodged with like four to five paragraphs was around whether they will continue to have plentiful deals or not. And I believe the answer to that is actually no. I, I think pickings are slim now. I think we've talked about this on previous uh, podcasts as well, but like who else of quality is there at medium to large scale? And so I feel like the Zynga m is definitely going to slow down significantly. But um, yeah. yeah that's, a, that's a really good point. I, I, you're right. I don't know how many viable independents are out there. And, and, and when you talk about the PC side or the console side, it's even worse, right? There's just not much going on now. We said last podcast, I think, is that we're starting to see more and more investment from the VC guys uh, in this, in particularly in the free-to-play going after the Fortnite money. Or did we talk about that? I can't even remember. But I'm, I've been talking about that. So there could be startups that kind of come come around like the Dauntless guys or, you know, there's this big investment in Singularity 6 recently from Andreessen. So there may be some more opportunities going forward. But what I... My take on Zynga is they don't need any more, they could do one more big acquisition, which we've talked about before, Peak or whatever the rest of Peak. But once they once they do that, I think they have enough for the next three, three or four years. And by that time, maybe there will be some viable candidates that have been you know, uh, funded by VCs that, that would be really good pickups for them to execute against console PC. Because I 100% agree with you is that there's no way they have the capability internally to build PC or console free-to-play, they have to acquire, right? Right. And to, to your point, though, they, they can certainly ride the current acquisitions for the next few years, for sure. So that's good. And yeah, I, I, don't, I don't mean to clown Petra. <laughs> I, I mean, from everything I've heard, you know, I've, I've only heard good things about him. But um, anyway, moving on to the next article. Disney reportedly planning sale of g gaming division Fox Next by GamesIndustry.biz. And, you know, kind of the worst kept secret in the games industry from earlier but, um, you know, the funny thing is about, you know, is just recently about 100 other publications also reported 
on this news. So um, we've already made a fair amount of speculation and conjecture, including you know sort of contradictory speculative statements from me in, in terms of who the potential buyer is. So first I said maybe EA or Zynga, and then I said probably neither, and, may, and, and most likely I have an Asian buyer or nobody. But it'll be good to see what happens in the end, and I, I think the timing's starting to come up to where we'll actually see what happens. Um, and you know, I, I think the interesting point is why is there so much PR around this suddenly, right? And so it's kind of like when we speculated about the Tetris announcement by Network, figuring they were looking for financing. So why why so much PR about this planned sale? I my personal conjecture is I, I think they're having trouble with the sale, <laughs> so they're, they're turning on the charges. <laughs> so I don't know, um, Eric. <laughs> you know, I uh, we've talked. Yeah, we talked about the the PR of M&A before where they throw this thing out there because they just want to attract as many potential buyers as possible. So my, this is my gut. My gut tells me that they were probably negotiating something and they, they had a deal that would sell the whole company and, and they'd be done and, and they didn't need to go so broad and that deal probably just didn't happen. And so now they're moving on to other potentials. I think they may be in the same situation as Kabam was back in the day where they have to uh, split it up, probably something they don't want to do um, and maybe sell off the studio potentially uh, in LA. I, I don't know, dude, because that gets super complicated. I'm sure Disney does, doesn't want to deal with it, but you know, I have a ton of people that I know there, so I really don't want to talk too much about it. I, I wish them luck. I hope uh, everyone works. It works out for them. Um, they have some decent products and some things in the pipeline that look interesting. So we shall see. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure if I can really add much to this. <laughs> this is a sticky topic. Uh, but yeah, of course I'm a huge fan of Fox Next and what they did, especially with Marvel Strike Force. So yeah, I'm, I'm sad that it's actually, you know, taking this long for them to find that sale, um, that they've had to resort to PR at this scale to do it. But at the same time, I'm, I hope they find a buyer soon um, so we can all, or they can all move on and have a bright future because they do have a good game. Yeah. Anyway, the last article, um, are the glory days of social casino over? Probably. Exclamation mark. Um, I actually really love this article. This is like something that I would write or, uh, <laughs> because it's like, it was so succinct and to the point, this guy like must be an investment banker type you know, MBA guy. Um, I don't know him. I've actually heard him on calls before, but I, I, I want to get to know him. Um, he basically talks about uh, social casino in the sense that, you know, despite it, and I'm going to just kind of quote him, despite growing every year, year since the social casinos launched, uh, it, the ind industry is starting to face significant risks. Um, and they're starting to see uh, growth do, driven by monetization instead of like increasing the uh, player base, which is totally true. Uh, there also, there's a problem of, um, social casinos kind of looking outside the space for acquisitions to basically diversify their portfolios outside of social casino. Um, and, and he basically goes on to say that they really need to look at different opportunities, um, and to figure out how to participate in real money gambling. Um, again, this is a remarkably smart article, you know, very pragmatic, totally makes sense. You know, no, no hype. I guess this is on his blog because... This is just not the type of thing you would see in any type of uh, enthusiast press or anything like that, or you know what I mean? I don't know. Anyway, so what we're seeing in, well, what I saw in the data, because I actually track, uh, you know, the different genres uh, in, in mobile is that 
you know, the, yeah, he's totally right. The growth, growth is totally being driven by modernization and not new players. You know, market still is growing 15% year over year this year, which is remarkable because it's a huge market. But downloads are down about six. Um, and again, the market is driven by North America, right? Where, you know, with very, very little revenue in the rest of the world, and I'll get to that in a moment. But um, so the other thing that keeps talking about is that uh, a lot of these big, successful firms in social casino are, are actually looking outside of social casino for growth. So big fish uh, aristocrat are acquiring different things. Zynga is acquiring outside of uh, social casino, Playtica, et cetera. Um, and that's the one big risk for SciPlay, which they do mention in the article is that they have no other types of games or any capability of making any of the games outside of um, social casino. So that's why SciPlay in general is just a super risky play. Um, and then his point on real money gambling is exactly right. It is very likely that if we start seeing more and more states uh, approve real money gambling and they come to mobile, dude, these social casino guys are screwed, right? Because people are going to move on to those, you know, you're going to, I mean, it makes common sense, right? If you're going to go to a, a casino that actually has real money and payouts, not, not, not these fake currency, right? I mean, that's, that's what, their dream is to do is play anyway so my point here is this is that um 80 to 90 percent of the revenue from social casino is coming from us canada and australia like they're very these are the, like the three countries that don't allow real money gambling so once real money gambling is al allowed they're going to just base i think most of that market's going to go toward towards real money gambling um europe for instance has real money gambling that's legal and so therefore they they're very very small in terms of uh, their their revenue contribution to social casino, so anyway, if they um, do risk, if they, they do continue to legalize it, it will be risky for them, and it's going to take a long time for them to legalize it across all the states. But I think you know they should be prepared for the risk of losing share, um, and there's risk that they don't execute fast enough. So people like Zynga are definitely. Zynga and Aristocrat in particular are probably at a huge advantage on that side. So anyway, I think it makes sense to divest away from social casino to help mitigate this risk, which is what most of the big guys are doing. Cool. So like you, Eric, I, I was on a call with Lloyd Melnick a few years ago and, and the dude just sounded so smart. I, I was super impressed. You, you can really tell that he, he knows the stuff and he's very, very deep. I also bought his LTV book. So for anyone out there, uh, <laughs> let, me, let me pimp his book. But, um, you know, I, I won't say too much here, except just to say that the way that Lloyd is thinking about slots, maybe we should also be thinking about other genres. For example, match three is, is that market growing in match three market? Not, not to go too off topic, but yes, but there are definitely dark clouds there. And so kind of following that same line of thinking, I, I think we should, look for comparable aspects of slots and into other areas like match three. And, um, you know, one of the comparable aspects of slots in match three are our payback windows. So, you know, you can kind of tell the maturity of a genre by looking at the payback windows. So both slots in match three started at six months, then went to eight, then went to a year and a half. And now the biggest guys are, are like at two to three years. And one, I think one of the key mistakes people out there make is that, you know, they're kind of eager to jump into some of these uh, highly competitive categories. And, you know, they, they kind of miss the fact that, you know, the, the download game is an auction based market. So to be competitive, 
you not only have to compete on product and all the other stuff, the technical depth, the genre-specific depth, but also on marketing spend. Anyway, uh, I'm not... I'm, you know, I'm not super f uh, focused on the match stream market, but I guess that this is a market that slightly lags slots from a structural perspective. So just to, you know, follow that same line of thinking that Lloyd Melnick takes with slots to other genres, I, I think is a good exercise. Adam? Yeah, that's actually a really good point about match three. Um, I, I can't really add here, um, add much here other than you know, I'll definitely be interested in watching Platika, Huge, and other social casino companies expand outside of social casino. Uh, Platika, with the acquisition of Jelly Button, Wuga, and Best Fiends, uh, which we actually talked briefly about before, kind of being that, that frothy evaluation for, for um, seriously likely based on this trend that he's talking about. Um, it's been interesting kind of watching social casino move into match three, which as you're talking about being kind of a, a highly competitive market on its own. Um, however, also keep in mind with Wuga, their puzzle division actually at the time had not seen kind of massive success since Jelly Splash and Diamond Dash. Um, so it's actually more likely that they acquired Hidden Object and with the case of Huge is that they've been investing in hyper casual. So it's not just like investing in match three, it's also say Hidden Object casual genres and hyper casual. Um, so I'd, I'd agree with kind of an investment in match three even though it is a mature and difficult market, but I can at least see the skill sets of Social Casino actually working well in match three. Um, I remember researching a little bit in the Social Casino maybe about two, three years ago, and it was kind of interesting to watch Social Casino games actually start to adopt designs from match three. So they'd actually start adding like saga maps to Social Casino games. They'd start adding like homescapes builders on top of a casino core, which was kind of interesting. Um, but expanding into hidden object and hyper casual, that's a, I just don't see the competency overlap there. So those transitions will definitely be a lot larger shift. Um, but um, I would just plus one to his overall point on on the necessary, uh, th these companies being necessary to actually innovate on their audiences over expanding into audiences that they might not have expertise in. Um, but the big point being about coin masters and their growth really showing that kind of thinking outside the slot machine uh, can still yield results. Cool. I think that's about it. I would say, unless there are any final comments, maybe one from me is uh, Lloyd Melnick, if you're out there and listening, if you ever want to jump on a Twig episode with us, uh, let us know. We'd love to have you on. Dude, uh, he, he, he ignored my LinkedIn invite, so <laughs> I'm feeling a little bit dejected and rejected right now. <laughs> All right. Um, but yeah, I think besides that, I think that's just about it. Bye, everybody. See you. See you.